0: This morning, followers of Jesus Christ rejoice and celebrate one of the most profound and powerful events in all of human history. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the God-man, Jesus Christ, got up from the dead. Jesus got up from the dead, and the world hasn't been the same since. Jesus' profound and powerful impact on the world was not merely a result of his life, No, in large part, it was a consequence of his resurrection. Sure, Jesus had a large following during his lifetime, but it wasn't until after his resurrection from the grave that word about him began to dramatically expand beyond the places where he walked and talked. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus got up from the dead. Men and women started going and telling others about this thing that had happened. And this morning, as we study Matthew chapter 28, we'll consider again what took place in one of the most profound and powerful events in all of human history. And it is my hope that after reconsidering the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be encouraged to go and tell others about this great thing that has happened. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Matthew chapter 28, beginning on page 835. Throughout the course of this sermon, I'm going to be referring to the chapter and verse. The chapter is the uh, larger number there in the print, and the verse is going to be the smaller number in the verse. I'd encourage you to have a Bible open during this time, as it'll, it'll help you follow along. As you're turning there, uh, let me just orient us to where we are in Matthew's Gospel, Uh, Where are we? Well, we're, we're at the end, the last chapter, in fact. And even though we're at the end of Matthew's gospel, we need to remember the beginning. From the beginning of his gospel, Matthew has been at pains to communicate to his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King that the Old Testament pointed forward to. Jesus... Called Matthew, the author of this gospel. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. He called, Jesus called Matthew to follow him. And as a Jew, Matthew was well-versed in the Old Testament prophecies and promises concerning the Messiah, the Savior whom God promised. And as an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry, he was eminently qualified to write and teach us about Jesus Christ and his life. Matthew's gospel, this gospel that we're looking at, the end that we're looking at, it began with a not so subtle hint that Jesus was God's promised king and savior of the world. Matthew, through Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1, shows us how Jesus is connected to Abraham and to David. Jesus would be the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to Abraham that through Jesus the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus would be the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to David. That Jesus would be the king who would rule over God's people. Who would be scattered all over the world. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 even tells us the reason that God's son, Jesus Christ, was sent into the world in the first place. Jesus was sent to save his people from their sins, Matthew said. And he also said that he was meant to be God with us. The Gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus victoriously accomplishing that work of salvation. However, if we're honest about what took place in the chapters just before the one that we're looking at today, the chapters that we looked at on Friday evening, then at first glance it doesn't appear as though Jesus has victoriously accomplished that salvation for sinners. It appears that Jesus was in fact defeated by death. As we learn from Matthew chapters 26 and 27, Jesus was mocked, he was beaten, and he was crucified on Friday. His dead body was claimed by Joseph of Arimathea, and he, Joseph of Arimathea, he treated the body of Jesus as a dead body. Not only by wrapping Jesus' body in a linen cloth, but also by putting his body in the place where dead bodies went in that day and age, a tomb. Matthew told us that a few of Jesus' disciples were were there watching all of this take place. They were there watching his burial in this tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Jesus' disciples and followers knew that Jesus was dead. They saw his body wrapped in cloth and laid in the tomb. They even saw it sealed with a, a huge boulder. The stone that sealed Jesus' tomb would have been so massive that several grown men would have had to roll it out of place if it were to be moved by the hands of men. That stone, that wax seal was placed around the tomb and guards were placed at the tomb. They all ensured that no one could get in or out. And this is where we begin our study this morning. We're going to study Matthew chapter 28 in four sections under four headings. You could summarize the thrust of this whole passage in three simple words. So if you want to know what is the message of Matthew 28, it's this. Go and tell. Go and tell. Here's the here's the flow of the chapter. God sends an angel to go and tell Mary and Mary Magdalene that Jesus has risen from the dead. The angel then sends the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. The risen Savior then interrupts the journey of these women as they're on their way to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. And when Jesus does interrupt that journey, Jesus encourages the women to continue on their way to go and tell the disciples that He has risen. The Jewish religious leaders tell the tombs guards to go and tell others that Jesus has not risen. And then finally... Matthew's Gospel concludes with Jesus' great and final commission. One last time in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus instructs His disciples to go and tell the world that Jesus is the risen and reigning King. Let's take a closer look at the text of Matthew chapter 28. Now let's begin with our first point, the angels go and tell. This is the angels go and tell. And as we do, read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 7, beginning there in verse 1. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he was going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. As Matthew chapter 28 opens, we learned that the Sabbath had passed. Jesus died on Friday and was laid in the tomb. His dead body rested in the tomb on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. For those in the first century, this would have been considered three days due to the fact that Jesus spent some time in the tomb on each day. Matthew also notes that the women who had been sitting opposite the tomb when Jesus was buried made their way to the tomb toward the dawn of the first day of the week. All four New Testament Gospels record that detail, that they went to the tomb on the first day of the week. When you move out from the Gospels in the New Testament, this phrase, the the first day of the week, is often connected with worship gatherings of Christians. It is later called, in the New Testament, later in the New Testament, it's called the Lord's Day. This makes a great deal of sense, given that we as Christians worship the risen Lord Jesus on the first day of the week. Every Sunday we gather, we are celebrating Easter all over again. Christian, do you realize that every Sunday is Easter Sunday? And that we are rejoicing and worshiping the risen Christ because He has been raised as a preview and promise of our hope of one day living in the new heavens and the new earth in a new created order with newly glorified bodies just like Jesus' resurrected body. We are preparing ourselves each and every Sunday, each and every Lord's Day, we are preparing ourselves with life, with the risen Christ in the new creation. Did you think about that when you got up this morning, this Sunday, and every Sunday we gather, we are preparing ourselves for life with the risen Christ in the new creation. This is a dress rehearsal, as some have said. We have this wonderful hope because Jesus got up from the dead. These women who were going to the tomb would never be the same. Who were these women who were approaching the tomb so early on the first day of the week? Well, we don't know a whole lot about them, but Matthew's readers probably would have known them. One, significant, one of the significant details that Matthew has already given his readers can be found in chapter 26, verses 55 and 56. There Matthew mentions that they had followed Jesus and ministered to him. Matthew very clearly casts these women as disciples, as student followers of Jesus and those who supported Him in the ministry. What were these women doing, going to see the tomb? Well, they weren't going there because they believed it would be empty and open. That wouldn't make any sense. They were going to the tomb because they believed that Jesus' dead body would be found in that tomb. The Gospel of Mark's resurrection account, even makes clear that these women had purchased burial spices so that they might go and anoint him. These women were not coming to his tomb, to this tomb, expecting to meet a resurrected Jesus. They are coming to this tomb expecting to finish properly burying his dead and smelly body. Sometime before this sad and dark walk to the tomb, Matthew tells us that a great earthquake had taken place that the stone had been removed and that a very bright angel had done this Matthew's reference to this earthquake reminds us of the earthquake that took place just after Jesus' death in Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 it is so appropriate that these two scenes of Jesus' death and his resurrection were connected by an earthquake because something earth-shattering happened in Jesus' death and resurrection sin and death were defeated At some level, it is completely unsurprising that an angel would descend from heaven and have a bright appearance like lightning. Angels, they were present to announce Jesus' entrance into the world. And now an angel is present to announce his exit from the grave. Angels are servants and messengers of God. Here, this angel serves the Lord by removing the stone. His appearance and actions terrify the guards Of the tomb these guards they they wouldn't be men who were easily scared these are men who are prepared to die carrying out their commission but notice here in verse 4 that they're scared to death this they fall down as as like dead men this is almost always the reaction of men and women who come into contact with angels in the Bible now for some reason angels in our cultural consciousness have become sweet and uh, cute figures that we like to associate with love and Valentine's Day. But in the Bible, angels are some of the most frightening creatures to encounter. No one in the Bible meets an angel and goes on their merry way as if nothing happened. Angels strike fear into the hearts of those they greet. Not only were the guards scared to death and paralyzed by fear, but these women approaching the tomb we're scared too. That's why in verse 5 you see there that the angel had to say to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Again, we see the angel served the Lord by descending from heaven to earth and rolling away the stone. But consider afresh the message that he was sent to deliver. The message that he has been sent to go and tell. On God's behalf there in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. These are some of the sweetest and most beautifully constructed sentences in all of the Bible. These women had come here to the tomb, seeking Jesus to finish properly burying his dead body. But the angel tells them, he is not here. And as soon as these words come off his lips, you can imagine the the myriad of thoughts running through the minds of these women. If, If he is not here, then where is his body? Before such a question can even come off their lips, the angel says, For he has risen. I love that little three letter word, for. It tells us why he is not here. He is not here because he has risen. Risen? What do you mean risen? That doesn't make any sense. Dead men can't get up. It's true. But those who are alive can't. The the message that the angel is delivering to these women is astounding. And it's simply this. Jesus is alive. The, The one whom you are seeking, the one who was crucified and put to death, the one that you saw laid in this tomb, is alive. The angel was telling the women... The one whom you are seeking is alive. Can you just, can you imagine the confusion, the confusion that these women must have felt? This news, it's altogether surprising for the women, but it shouldn't be. For the angel reminds them that this had taken place as he said, as Jesus said it would. No less than three times in Matthew's gospel did Jesus openly tell his disciples that he would rise again from the dead. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And then in Matthew chapter 20, Verses 18 and 19, we hear Jesus say to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. It happened just as Jesus said. And the angel even shows them the empty tomb. He says, Come, come, see the place where he lay. He invites them to investigate for themselves the truth of what he is saying. They are permitted to see for themselves that Jesus is not there, that he has been raised, just as he said. Given that he is not here, well, it's no use for them to be there, especially with the burial spices. So the angel tells them to go and tell the disciples that he has been raised from the dead. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower, a disciple of Jesus, it's my hope that you grasp what has taken place in Jesus' resurrection. I hope that you grasp why there is a profound need for the resurrection. You see, when God first created the world, He set the first man and the first woman in a beautiful garden. They were to love and serve God and have a glorious relationship with Him. God gave man one rule. He said that they could eat of every tree in the garden except one. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God promised the first couple that should they eat a the fruit of that tree, then they would surely die. Sadly, Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, they disobeyed God. They sinned against God. They ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree. And sin, therefore, came into the world through Adam's sin. And because of Adam's sin, death spread to all mankind, just as God had promised. Shortly after Adam's sin, God promised to send a Redeemer to rescue man from the curse of sin and death. Mankind needed a Redeemer who would not die, but who would lead them to everlasting life. And Jesus is that Redeemer. In Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God became man by taking to Himself a true body and soul. And at the right time, He began His ministry. And when He did, for three and a half years, He traveled around performing miracles. He taught and He cared for His disciples. He lived a sinless life. According to the Scriptures, He was the second Adam. But He was radically different from the first. He was without sin. Everything he did, he did in obedience to God the Father. And then, Jesus was put to death on the cross. The writers of the New Testament shockingly tell us that this was God's plan. This was God's plan. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. From an earthly perspective, an innocent man had died a criminal's death. From a heavenly perspective, Jesus was bearing in His body on the cross the punishment due to sinners like you and me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus was suffering the wages of sin, which is death. Just as God had promised Adam in the garden. It was through Jesus' death that God plans to put an end to death for His people. The message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this that after his death and lying dead in the grave for three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, God raised Jesus from the dead early on Sunday morning. He he reversed what took place in that first garden, and in a garden tomb, he raised his son in victory over sin and death. God raised him body and soul never to die again. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you and encourage you to believe this good news that I have just proclaimed. That Jesus came to reverse the curse of Adam. That He came to conquer death. Believe that Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose again from the grave so that you might be set free from bondage to sin and death. Believe in the work of Jesus Christ so that you might escape the eternal punishment that we deserve. Because of our sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ in faith, please come and talk with me at the door after the service. Speak with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. If you're you're still skeptical that Jesus actually got up from the grave, then keep listening. As along the way, I hope to offer just a few reasons why Jesus' resurrection is the only viable answer to the empty tomb. God's go and tell. For the angel was for him to go and tell the women that Jesus was not there. That he was alive, just as he said. Let's turn now and consider our next point, our second point. The women's go and tell. As we do, take a look at Matthew chapter 28, beginning there in verse 8. We're going to read verses 8, 9, and 10 now. Matthew 28, beginning there in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Well, these women quickly did as they were told. They ran, and they left the tomb to go and tell the disciples that Jesus was not there. That he had risen, just as he said. Now, notice their emotions there in verse 8. Do you see them? They were filled with what? With fear and great joy. Mark's gospel tells us that they were astonished and afraid. Those are authentic reactions. Understandable, relatable, human reactions to the news of Jesus' resurrection. But mid-joy and fear-filled stride, suddenly Jesus appeared to them. And says greetings one believer pointed out that these women had been last at the cross first at the tomb and now they are the first who had the joy of seeing their Lord and notice what these women do do you see that there they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him could there be a more appropriate response to encountering the risen Christ He doesn't refuse their worship. Did you see that? Jesus doesn't refuse them their worship or tell them to stop. He doesn't rebuke them. No, he receives their worship. He is entitled to it because he is God in the flesh. He is God and king. People bow down at the feet of monarchs. They bow down at the feet of kings. And here Matthew is telling us through the actions of these women that Jesus is God and king who is to be worshipped. They grab hold of his feet. He was alive and they could feel him with their hands. He was physically raised from the dead. They weren't grasping at a vision. They were holding the actual physical feet of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Feet that had walked in perfect righteousness. Feet that had walked on water. Feet that had gotten on the road to Jerusalem to go there and die. Feet that had been nailed to the cross for them and for their sins. Feet that had walked out of that tomb. They worshiped Jesus at His feet as God and King. Now, many people are skeptical of Jesus' resurrection. Some have even endeavored to develop alternate explanations of the empty tomb one of those explanations is that the women went to the wrong tomb that explanation fails to address several factors first these women saw where Jesus was buried they saw the tomb in which he was laid secondly they were unmistakably greeted by an angel who showed them Jesus empty tomb but let's not forget the most formidable piece of evidence all they saw Jesus After his resurrection, they held his feet and worshipped him, worshipped our God and King. And Jesus is such a good Lord and compassionate King. He knows that these precious women are afraid. He knows that they're afraid and he comforts them. He tells them not to be afraid. Wouldn't that be hard to do in that moment? I think it would Whatever the case may be, Jesus reaffirms and reassigns these women to their mission. You see there verse 10? According to verse 10, they're, they're to go and tell the disciples, my brothers, as Jesus calls them, to go to Galilee. For He will meet them there. For a moment, I want to speak to the women of our congregation. Sometimes I wonder if women question whether or not Jesus understands them. After all, He was a man. And some men are sometimes less than sympathetic and understanding, to put it generously. So, sisters, I can understand that if to some degree you project your experience and interaction with men upon Jesus, I can understand why you might do that. But I would encourage you not to do that. For Jesus is unlike any other man who has ever walked this earth. Jesus shows every man what it means to be a man. And he shows perfect sympathy and understanding to every woman he encountered. We see his compassion and understanding displayed to these women. We see a glimpse of that here as he seeks to calm their fears. Sisters, Jesus knows when you are afraid. He he understands you. He loves you. All men want to be worshipped. But the reality is, is that Jesus is the only man you should worship. So go and tell others that he has been raised. Tell them that he reigns. And tell them that he redeems. Worship him. Children, youth, young adults, young people, this goes for you as well. I wonder if sometimes you feel misunderstood, Uh, misunderstood by your peers. Uh, By your parents By your teachers, maybe even your friends Do you wonder if Jesus can even understand what life is like for you? Well young people Jesus does understand He is a sympathetic Savior Remember he lived on this earth as a baby as a child as a young person and even as an adult He can understand your experience in this life. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. And He knows your fears. He knows you. He understands. And you can trust Him. Let's turn now and consider our our third point. The guards go and tell. And as we do, take a look at Matthew chapter 28, beginning there in verse 11. Verses 11 to 15. This is the guards go and tell. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money And did as they were directed and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day in these verses Matthew tells us that while the women were going and telling the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead the guards were instructed to go and tell others something else that Jesus body had been stolen now we don't know exactly how many guards were at Jesus tomb But notice, but some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests that all all that had taken place. You see that in verse 11. What, What had taken place? Well, the earth shook. An angel descended from heaven, rolled the stone away. Jesus was raised, and the tomb was left empty. This does not sit well with the chief priests, They had been enemies of Jesus. They spent time, money, and social capital and political capital to put him into that tomb. What is more, they had called upon Pilate to place a guard at that tomb and seal it for good measure. The chief priests we see here, they come up with an alternate story to tell. That the disciples stole the body while they were asleep. Note carefully that they're still maintaining that Jesus was dead. They even gave the soldiers a significant sum of money and promised to satisfy Pilate that they should get should they get into trouble. And the end of verse 15 makes clear that they did, in fact, go tell others this story. A- ask yourself, Why are these verses, why are these verses in Matthew's gospel? Because the reality of the resurrection is not something that was easily believed and because there really was a competing story being told in and around Jerusalem. I think that this speaks to the authenticity and the honesty of Matthew's Gospel. Frankly, if you are trying to make up a religion, you don't include the fact that there are detractors at the very epicenter of where your religion began. If you're trying to make up a religion, you don't include a story about women, who were going to the tomb to finish preparing the dead body of your religion's founder. Instead, if you were making up a story, you wouldn't have made women the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection. No no offense, ladies, but this is a reality in the first century court of law, that typically women would not be called upon to give an account of events as evidence. The culture was suspicious of the testimony of women. So if you were making up this story and you wanted it to have credibility you would make the first witness a man and not a woman. Nevertheless, even if you, for some reason, decided that women should be your first witnesses, you wouldn't have them approaching the tomb to finish preparing the dead body of Jesus. Instead, you would have them approaching the tomb confident that they were going to see Jesus alive. To press the point even further, if you were making up a religion, you wouldn't say what Matthew says in verse 17. He says that some doubted. When you're trying to get people to believe this story, you don't mention that people doubted. There is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the flesh, appearing to His disciples and others. And what does Matthew tell us? He says that some worshiped, and what? Some doubted. Now, you just don't mention that kind of thing. Unless you are persuaded of the veracity of the story you're telling, that Jesus really was raised, and you're honestly recording history. These are real, authentic reactions that people had to the news of Jesus' resurrection. And I love how Matthew is unfazed by the actions of the chief priests and the guards. He recognizes that this alternate report is going around. But he doesn't develop a PR strategy to shut the story down. He simply and effectively says, look, this report, it continues to be spread to this day. And we, we continue to tell ours. That sounds, just sounds like just a person who is unafraid and confident that the truth, God's truth, will prevail. It sounds like a man who is honestly writing history as it happened. So far, we have seen the angels go and tell, the women's go and tell, the guards go and tell, and now we turn to consider our final point, the disciples go and tell. Read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20 now. Beginning there in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, it seems like the women have accomplished their go and tell mission. Both the angel and Jesus instructed the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised and that he would meet them in Galilee. What's fascinating is that the disciples need to be encouraged and instructed to go to Galilee. Jesus had made clear before his death that Galilee was where they were supposed to go after he had been raised. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26 verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Again, if you are making this story up, you don't need to instruct the disciples to go to Galilee. And in that day and age, you wouldn't have instructed them by women. Instead, you would have had the disciples simply recall what Jesus said and instinctively they would go because Jesus' resurrection would be a foregone conclusion for them. But the disciples themselves were real men who were really surprised by the reality of Jesus' resurrection. So they have received the go and tell of the women and made their way to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Now, for those Bible scholars out there, uh, you'll remember that mountains have a significant place in the Bible's storyline. Mountains are the place where God reveals Himself and His plans. The Ten Commandments and the design of the tabernacle were revealed to Moses on a mountain. Jesus revealed that he came to fulfill all righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus revealed his divine glory in the Transfiguration on a mountain. Jesus taught his disciples about what the end of the world would be like in his Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And now, here, Jesus will make another revelation on a mountain in Galilee. Notice that on this mountaintop, Jesus, He receives worship. God. And God alone is worthy of worship. And this worship would be blasphemous if it were not for the fact that Jesus is God, the Son. He is the second person of the triune Godhead, and He is worthy of worship for all that He is and all that He has done on behalf of His people. Many refuse to believe that Jesus is God. And they suggest that Jesus never thought of Himself as God and that he would be horrified if people thought of him like that but that is just not the message of the New Testament Jesus revealed himself in divine and human terms as a human he had to eat and drink and sleep and breathe and communicate and as God he exercised power over creation and he received worship while Jesus reception of worship in verse 17 communicates his divinity to us His words in verse 18 also communicate the same. Do you see that there? He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In view of the Son's vicarious life and death and victorious resurrection, the Father has given to Him all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, the Father mediates and exercises His universal authority through the Son. This once again makes clear that Jesus is the king that the opening of Matthew's gospel makes clear. This redemptive historical advance of the Father giving the Son authority to rule and reign is acted upon quickly by Jesus. As the king of the universe, he immediately commands his disciples to go and tell the world the good news of the gospel, that the king and the Messiah that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to has come to live, die, and be raised for the salvation of sinners. Jesus commissions his disciples to go in his authority. Jesus' followers are authorized ambassadors who have been authoritatively commissioned to proclaim the risen Christ. Now, here is something that we need to understand about ambassadors they aren't merely private individuals who share their personal beliefs and experiences with others. They do not send themselves, but are officially commissioned and sent. As one Christian said, ambassadors, as you know, express and communicate the authority of the king on behalf of the king. They make disciples. They make disciples by calling them to submit to the rule and reign of King Jesus. They make disciples not just of some nations, but you see here, of all nations. Because that's the extent of his authoritative rule and reign. They make disciples, students, faith-filled followers of King Jesus, which means that they must express, display, and give evidence of their loyalty to the King. Jesus Christ has given us a sign and symbol for this loyalty and this expression of faith in Him. It's baptism. These disciples who go and make other disciples are commanded to baptize them. So what is baptism? Well, Article 14 of our Church's Statement of Faith says this about baptism. Christian baptism Is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life? Christian baptism is a sign from God that symbolizes the work that God has done in our lives, and at the same time, it is a public profession of our submission to Christ as our King. It is a declaration by God, because it's a sign from Him, given from Him, that He has washed away our sins. He has cleansed us of our moral guilt and liability for our sin. Further, the institution of baptism signals that God's promises to Abraham, to Moses, and David have been fulfilled. What was the promise made to Christ the Son? In relation to his messianic work. Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 says this. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. For your inheritance. Baptism. Is the covenant sign of our union with Christ. in the fullness of his saving benefits. Baptism signals that whatever belongs to Jesus. Belongs to us. Through our union with him. It is a sign that we have received the Holy Spirit. A sign of our belonging to the body. And perhaps what is most amazing is that baptism is a sign of our fellowship with the Trinity. It is a sign that we are named. We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Naming in the Bible represents an expression of authority. We are not our own. We belong to our King who bought us at the price of His own blood. Baptism is God's declaration that we have fellowship with the triune God and that we are His children. Baptism is also a declaration that we make. When we are baptized, we are proclaiming that we believe in Christ, that He is our sovereign King, that we have been united to Him through faith, and that as a result of our our union with Him, that we have all of the benefits and blessings that He gives to us. It is a sign given to us by God that through Jesus to display and teach others what has taken place in the life of a believer. It displays that we have, by God's grace, died to sin. It displays that we're repenting of our sin and endeavoring not to pursue them anymore. And it means that we are living a new life, a life of submitting to and following King Jesus. There is, unfortunately, a lot of confusion about baptism in Christianity today. But I think that Jesus is quite clear. Do you see that there in verse 19? Jesus tells us who is to be baptized. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So disciples, followers of Jesus, are to be baptized. And this also clarifies the fact that baptism does not save anyone. Instead, it makes plain that salvation has already taken place. Those who have been baptized as believers are responsible to live in a new way. And they're also responsible to live as a part of a new community, a local church. When we read the book of Acts, we see that new Christians were baptized, and they were added to the number of the local church. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And remember that this is Peter. This is after Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying, So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls to their number. Those who believed in Jesus and were baptized became members of a local body of believers. This is how the go-and-tell commission of Jesus moves forward in this world. This is how disciples of all nations are made. Disciples go and tell the good news about King Jesus. More disciples are made which means that more ambassadors are commissioned to go and tell and teach others about Jesus and all that He has commanded. Local kingdom embassies, also known as local churches, are formed all over the globe. And while Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, it is expressed in and through embassies where ambassadors proclaim that their citizenship is in heaven. No wonder the Apostle Peter called Christians strangers and aliens Jesus' great commission is accomplished by going and telling. Jesus enjoins something upon us in this great commission. Jesus commands us to observe all that he has commanded. We live in a world that does not like to be taught or told to observe anything. As fallen human beings, we instinctively push back against authority. Who likes being told, you must do this? You must do that. As fallen human beings, we push against this. But what we need to call our friends, our family members, neighbors, co-workers, and fellow church members, too, is the total, all-encompassing authority of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. And so to resist what He has commanded is to rebel against the commander-in-chief of the universe. Friends, brothers and sisters... Have we submitted to Christ our King? Are we resisting His authority? Or are we welcoming His rule in our lives? We are to go and tell others about Christ our King until He returns. Having invested in His disciples His authority to proclaim Him as the risen King, we have the comfort that He will be with us. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. I want us to conclude by thinking about our king's presence with us as we go and tell the world about him. Matthew's gospel ends, you see there, the last phrase, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus promising his disciples that he would be with them to the very end of the age. The comfort that we are to have between the time of Christ's ascent into heaven and descent from heaven in his return Is that He will always be with us. The Holy Spirit, whom the Apostle Paul called the Spirit of Christ, brings us into union with Jesus, a union which God established and joined together, and which no man can separate. Jesus is God with us now and forever. Through His life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has accomplished what He said or what was said the very beginning of Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 1 verses 21 and 23 here's Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us do you see that right here at the end of Matthew's gospel that Jesus is still God with us do you remember that that's what Christmas was all about and do you see the connection Do you see that Christmas ensured Easter and Easter ensured that Jesus Christ would be with us as we go to the ends of the earth and tell others about him, even to the very end of the age. So friends, brothers and sisters, here is your go and tell. Go and tell others that Christ is risen. Let's pray together.